Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to be back again, as many of you, I know many of you, and uh, so you know that we're our regulars here, my wife Joyce and I, and a regular, we come here most Sundays, so it's good to be with you. And I um, share with uh, Cabot the, the sadness about what's happening in our world. You know, and the good news is this, is us who believe in there's a God in heaven can somehow deal with it. But if you don't have any relationship with God, you hear this news, you don't know what to make of it. And so something happened to me on Monday uh, that I thought was very interesting. Uh, I am in a golf league on Monday, and we play 18 holes, which means that you play with one person for a long time. And I've had a number of conversations with people uh, that I golf with. And we're going along, I think we're about the eighth or ninth hole, and Gene says to me, tell me, how did your life change? How did you move from where you are to become a pastor? What, made, what took place in your life? He wanted to hear my story, my spiritual journey. He's open. People today are far more open than you think is because everything that's going on around us. But what's key in all of this is our proximity to people who don't know Jesus is important. I golf every Monday with Gene. I don't always ride in the same cart, but over time he sees my life. And something happens in his life, he says, what's going on in your life, Terry? So just think about this. This is sad news for us, but it's even sadder for those without God. And they're, they're wanting answers, and please be ready to be around to ask the, answer them. You know, today we're complete, uh, continuing our series in Ezra and Nehemiah. And uh, basically, Ezra and Nehemiah, Nehemiah are two books with one story. It's a story about three leaders. There's Arubal, there's Ezra, and there's Nehemiah. Then the story is about their return to Jerusalem with exiles. And each one of them had been given permission by the Persian king to return to Jerusalem. Zerubbabel came back to build the temple. Last week we heard Ezra came back to bring reforms and to establish right worship. And Nehemiah returned because he came to build the wall. And each person's goal was ultimately, when they came back, was to bring redemption and uh, restoration to the Jewish nation. So that the kingdom of David would be restored again and his heir would, would rule the nation. But all three men accomplished great things. But the nation continued in its sinful practices. And, and restoration didn't happen during their time and will not happen until there's true repentance and forgiveness. So we're going to look at Nehemiah today. But I want to begin by telling you the story. Four years ago, when we moved into our house, we thought we wanted to put a bathroom in our basement. Just a simple bathroom in our basement. And uh, we had great reasons for doing this, for adding this to our house. But whenever we started to think about doing it, one of us, Joyce or I, would get cold feet and we stopped the project. So finally, this winter we said, we're going to do it. 
we're going to build this bathroom in our basement. And so we went through the process. We got bids. We got designs. And finally, we got a contractor. And so the contractor told us that the job was going to take one month to complete if everything went well. Well, you know, on any building project, something goes wrong. So the second week, he says, well, there's a problem you got to fix. And so they fixed the problem, and the, the bathroom was finished. But it took two months instead of one. And we were glad it was finished. Now, I have a picture of our bathroom, and I'll show you how simple this project is. And so could you show that picture, uh, the, the slide of the bathroom? This is our simple project that took us four and a half years to think about doing and too much to finish it. But you could take the bathroom down. We don't want to see that all morning. Uh, but it's a nice bathroom, okay, frankly. But anyways, <laughs> so please take it down. And, uh, but our story today, as I told you, Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem to build the wall. This is a much bigger project. But you know what's amazing about that? Our bathroom took 60 days. Nehemiah built the wall in 52 days. Two and a half miles of wall in 52 days. How did he do it? How did he accomplish this feat? And we're going to study that this morning. But I think what's first and foremost about Nehemiah is this. He was an outstanding leader. Nehemiah was an outstanding leader, and we have a lot to learn about leadership from Nehemiah. So you're going to be saying right now, I'm not a leader, for, so this message is not for me. Let me say this. All of us lead in some capacity. We lead in our families. We lead our children. We lead, at, uh, we lead in our neighborhoods, at work, at school, at church. We, so we're involved in leadership. And also, what's one of the good things is, is that to know a good leader a good leader is a good follower. So if you don't think you're a leader yet, if you become a good follower, you know how to follow a good leader. But some of you here this morning are actually leaders. And I think what's going to happen this morning is you're going to be inspired by Nehemiah's leadership because it reaches your heart. It's one of the interesting things. When I used to do talks on evangelism with students, and I would start about talking about evangelism, all of a sudden I'd see a smile here. I'd see someone nodding their heads. And I'd say, you know, that person probably has a gift in evangelism. Some of you are going to hear about Nehemiah today, and you're going to say, I'm going to say, you have the gift of leadership. And I think this is a good message for us here at LifeSpring to hear this morning. As we consider our building project, what kind of leaders do, are, is needed to complete the Place to Gather project? What kind of leaders are needed to complete the Place to Gather process, project? So let's look and see what we can learn about leadership from Nehemiah. As you saw in the first chapter, Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king Artaxerxes. Now, a cupbearer is a person who tastes the king's wine just before the king drinks it. Why? To see if it is, has poison in it. The office in the ancient courts was one of a rank and privilege, and they were an important person. 
a list, there's a list of what a cupbearer had to do, and it's kind of an interesting list. Number one, a cupbearer would be well-trained in court etiquette. You remember when Daniel and his friends went uh, to uh, Zusa and they were being trained in what it meant to be in the part of the court. The second thing I think is kind of interesting, they were probably handsome people. Cupbearers had to be handsome, probably because the king didn't want to look at someone who wasn't handsome, I guess. And he would certainly know his wines. He would know the good reds to give. He'd know the good whites to give. And a couple other factors about a cupbearer. He had to be a lively, friendly, and enjoyable sort. And willing to lend his ear and listen whenever the king wanted to talk. But he's, this cupbearer was a person of great influence. He had the ability to say who was going to see the king. And finally, he had the confidence of the king. That was Nehemiah's job. He was a cupbearer. And the passage of Nehemiah starts today, as we read in the first chapter, he gets a report from one of his brothers and the men from Jerusalem. And just reading verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1 again, it says this, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. First thing I want to say today, a leader has a clear vision of what God puts on their heart to do. A leader has a clear vision of what God puts on his or her heart to do. And the picture of this vision or what he's calling you to do becomes clearer over time. Well, what did uh, God put on Nehemiah's, Nehemiah's heart to do? You know, often when we look at what God calls us to do, it starts with a problem. We see a problem, or there's a holy dissatisfaction. In this case, the problem was the walls in Jerusalem were, uh, dis were destroyed and in ruins. But sometimes a call to a task might be we see injustice in the world, or we might see inefficiency might call us into a leadership task. Or it might be we see some dysfunctionality that calls us to a leadership task. Personally, one of the things that happened to me, and I'll spend, talk a little bit more about this, was I was continuing to see in the church today, it was becoming less and less effective in reaching the unchurched. And that problem was burning in my heart. And I wanted to make a difference in it. So one of the things that I did is I uh, took a job with Wheaton. And I'm, work I'm working with pastors across the country today trying to help them reach the unchurched. But what drove me into this, what God called me to do, was the fact that I saw what was happening in the church today. So Nehemiah gets this report. There's shame. The walls are in ruins. And, and here's about the, about the state of the exile. Exiles. So what does he do? So he did five things. 
He gets the report about the, about the walls. He sits down. He weeps. He mourns for days. He fasted and he prayed. Kind of an extreme reaction, right? And what I think is kind of interesting about his reaction is this. The walls have been ruined for 150 years. So because it was, it was so long, and why would it take him so long to feel so badly about it? Well, what had happened is Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the walls and tore them down. And what the, when not having walls in your city would make you vulnerable to your enemies. And the Jews did not rebuild the walls because of a couple of reasons. One, they didn't rebuild the wall was because there was a lot of opposition from outside Jerusalem. And then secondly, there was disunity in Jerusalem itself. And what they needed was a dynamic catalyst or an inspired leader to move them forward. But, you know, I think why Nehemiah responded the way he did about this report is you might remember in Ezra 4, when we were going through at the beginning of Ezra, when Zerubbabel was there in Jerusalem, they started rebuilding the wall. And some of that outside opposition wrote a letter to the king, and the king said, this has got to stop. So he said, there will be no building of the wall in Jerusalem. Well, guess who wrote that edict? It's Nehemiah's boss. So he's faced with the, the, the dilemma here that it's his boss who stopped the building. And so what is he going to do? And that's why I believe he was so sad. So what was his first course of action he took? He prayed. He prayed about the problem, and he prayed about his response to it. So finding what God wants us to do is often it's because something is happening, a problem or something's going on. Our reaction normally is this, what? It's to be critical and complain, right? What does Nehemiah do? He prays. And what I think is amazing there, and we're not going to take time to this, but it's in your bulletin, is if you look at uh, verses 5 through 11, this is a model prayer. If you want to look at a, how to pray, look at how Nehemiah prays in verses 5 through 11. What he does there in that prayer is he praises God. He confesses his sins. He thanks God for his promises, and then he makes requests. I think what impresses me most about Nehemiah, who's someone who has been removed from the nation of Israel and Jerusalem for a number of years, he confesses his sin just like everyone else. He takes ownership for what's going on there in, in the situation. And I think whenever we have true awareness of God, we will see our own sinfulness. And I think what happens, if you look at that prayer, if you study that prayer, you get the sense as he prays, he's getting more and more confident as he considers who God is and how he cares and promises to take care of his people. And that's why I think it leads him to this request in verse 11. Look at verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant 
and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So Nehemiah has this prayer session, has this time. But you know what? He keeps on praying for four more months. God didn't answer immediately for him. He kept on praying for an opening to talk to the king. And then one of the questions I have for you today is this. When you're concerned about something and you're praying about it, does your, over time, do you keep on praying or do you stop? If you keep on praying, that's what Nehemiah did, kept it before him, kept on working at it, and his faith was growing as he kept on praying. Often we don't do that. And so finally, he gets his chance to go before the king. Keep in mind, well, we're going to read about this in a second. When he comes before the king, the king's servants were always expected to have a happy face, never show their feelings, never be sad, and always be cheerful. That was what he's supposed to do. Now look at chapter 2, verse 2 through 4. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness in his heart. Then I was much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins? and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? It said he was afraid. I'm sure he's afraid because the king saw he was sad. But I think he also was afraid because, as as he mentions there, he doesn't mention Jerusalem there at all. He's afraid because he's going to ask his boss to let him go build the wall, which the boss had said, no, don't go do that. So Nehemiah does a quick prayer, and he, and he asks the king to send him to Judah. I think we see two things here about doing what God wants us to do. First of all, remember, it starts with a problem. There's a prayer. Secondly, a leader must at some point take a risk to launch the vision must take some risk. So in my case, what I did was I was getting more and more interested in helping the church. It was taking more of my time away from my other job. So I had to take a risk and quit my other job so I could spend more time working in what I'm doing now. Nehemiah took a risk here, brought it to the king. But the last thing that I would say a good vision has or a good doing what God wants us to do is you have a strategic plan. So you're thinking about what God wants you to do. It starts with the problem. It goes to the idea of you pray about it, see what God wants you to do. Secondly, you're going to have to take a risk sometime. Good leaders step out to launch it. And then fourth, there has to be a sense that you have a strategic plan. And I think it's pretty obvious to me over the four months that Nehemiah has been praying, he's not been praying just for opportunity. He's been praying for a strategic plan. 
So when the king said, what do you want to do? He says, number one, I want, I want letters to all the people so I have safe travel. Number two, I want to have timber so I can build the woods. I can build, up the, build the property up or the walls up. Three, he didn't ask for this, but he got an escort from the king all the way there as well. He was ready to go when the time was right. And so he gets to Jerusalem. He spends three days there. He doesn't tell anybody, and he does a little night inspection of the walls. He sees it. And he said at that point, he said, I, I didn't tell anybody what God put in my heart, but what after he saw the walls and all the things that God had done at that point, he had got the confidence he's going to do something. And so what does he do? Here's the second thing a leader does. A leader has a clear picture of what God wants him to do. The second thing, the leader builds a team to, help, to accomplish what God wants them to do. He builds a team. Now listen to this team that he built. First of all, let me read this to you. So he inspects the wall. He hadn't told anybody what he planned to do. And now his great presentation is here. Verse 17 through 20 of chapter 2. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with the gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for good work. How does he call a team? This is one of the problems that many leaders have. Is how do you get others to work with you to do what you have you want to do. And I think there's several things that we see here. Number one, Nehemiah was confident as he approaches the leadership and the people. He was confident in what he was going to do because he had thought through it. Often, we are very apologetic when we call people to do things or we try to make them feel obligated that we have no one who signs up. But he went confidently. He said, this is the problem, folks. And he calls it out. He spells it out clearly. Our walls need to be built. We are suffering shame and derision. And he calls the people to action. And finally, he gives examples of God's activity. And when we think about the place to gather, one of our things that we need to mention to people is, what, how has God been active in this project already? What has he done? We can't be shameful about that. We've got to tell folks. Because you know what that does? It inspires people to get into it. Because God's gracious hand's working on it. And that helps. But look at the team that he assembles. Now he's... This project was 52 days, right? What kind of leader is this guy? He had 41 parties working. They were 42 sections of the wall. The wall was built between two and two and a half miles. It encompassed anywhere from 90 to 200 acres. It depends on how you wanted to size it up. And each party averaged 250 feet of work, of wall. Everyone was involved in the task. 
They had a heart to work, Nehemiah said. You know, when you have an um, impossible task, you can't do it alone. You've got to have others to help. And what called people is he was, Nehemiah was confident and he depended on the Lord for success. And he says, we're going to do it. God's going to do this. And that inspired others to follow him. Again, I'll say this, to call people to help, you call them to what God is doing. You don't call them out of obligation or you have to or, or task. We want people to be inspired to be involved in this project. And that's what Nehemiah did. There was a guy who, uh, he wrote an article, he works in development of uh, community projects. He said this about this pa passage. I was struck that no expert builders were listed in the Holy Land Brigade. There were priests, priests' helpers, goldsmiths, perfume makers, and women, but no expert builders or carpenters were named. They did it even though they weren't skilled in it. They put their mind to it, and God worked. Are you involving other people in the work that God's calling you to do? I'm saying that is necessary to, move, to complete your project, but also as a leadership skill. The final thing is a leader must persevere until the task is done, despite opposition. We're not going to have the time this morning to look at both these oppositions, but opposition is going to come from externally and internally as well. And in some cases, when you get a project, when you think about place to gather, maybe our internal opposition is going to be more difficult than the external. But I want to talk about the external observation or opposition that Nehemiah had. His main opponents were Zambalit, who was the governor of Samaria, and secondly, Tobiah. And he was, uh, he was the uh, governor of Ammon or Transjordan. But the problem with Tobiah, he was a little tricky guy. He was connected to the Jer Jerusalem people, or to the Jews, because of intermarriage. He had married some folks, so he'd become a real rat within the system. But their, their issues with Nehemiah were not religious, but they were political. And I think there's a progression here. Let me just walk through this with you. When they heard that Nehemiah came to help, they were angry and, and displeased. When they heard the building plan, they jeered and they despised the Jews. They said, what is this thing you're trying to do? The city says, what, do you, what is the thing you're trying to do out there on 173? Are you rebelling against the community? So when they heard about the plan, they started. Then, but Nehemiah says to them, uh, his response always like this, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you will have no portion of right or claim in Jerusalem. When they actually start building the wall, they started mocking him and they were really mad now. And so they came over to the workers and said, what are those feeble Jews doing? 
Will they restore it themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? And then Tobias says this, you know, even a light-footed fox can walk on that wall and it's going to crumble. So they were, they were making fun of the work they were doing. But then what they did is they plotted against Jerusalem. And so they were going to fight against them when the, build, when the wall got half its size. Nehemiah says in 4.8, they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. And finally what they did, they said, okay, the wall was built. What are we going to do now? We couldn't stop the building. So what did they do? They went after Nehemiah. They went after the leader. And if they could discredit him, all his work would be discredited. And so what they did is they, they would say, hey, Nehemiah, four times, come and meet with us. And they were going to harm him. The fifth time, they said, come and meet with us. They sent the letter, and the letter said this. He left it open and didn't seal it so anybody could see it. Nehemiah wants to be king. And he's, got, he's hired false prophets to tell everybody and declare him king. And that didn't work. Nehemiah kept on working. So then what they said was they hired some false prophets. And they said, they said you've got to come to the temple to be safe, Nehemiah. But Nehemiah, if he had gone to the temple, he would have broken the law. And so he knew there were false prophets. And he said in Nehemiah 6, is this, for they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen our hands. He kept on working. He did not stop. And that's what Nehemiah did as a leader. Let me conclude with this. What Nehemiah did, what God put in his heart to do, He found his joy in the Lord. That was his strength. In 52 days, the wall was finished. Despite the opposition, he overcame their threats and he rebuilt the wall. And when it was done, this is what he said, when all the enemies heard of it, the nations around us were afraid and, great, and fell greatly in their own self-esteem for they perceived this work had been accomplished by God's help. When you take on a task that only God can do and it's completed, God gets the credit because he knows you can't do it. When you take on a task that's bigger than this community, God gets the credit. We all do things that we're probably not gifted at because we're pitching in. Would you have followed Nehemiah? I'll tell you what. I would, absolutely. Why would I have followed Nehemiah? Because he was a visionary. 
He took on this task. He was a shaker. He's a mover, a doer. But at the same time, so you think about someone being an activist like that. He was a prayer warrior. Every time when opposition came, he prayed. He answered with prayer. He was a strategic planner. He was decisive. He was a decisive person. But you know what makes a person decisive in doing God's work? It's that they fear God more than they fear man. You could be decisive in doing God's work if you fear what God thinks about you rather than the fear of man. So too many often, we get satisfied with from the people around us, the applause of people around us. That's where we get satisfied with that. But really where our satisfaction ought to come is that when we fulfill the law of God and do his work in our lives. You who are here today, do you have a vision? Do you have a vision for your life, for your ministry? Is it a great work? Is it great enough to keep you from being easily diverted from it? Do you expect opposition? Is your vision clear enough to bring a successful conclusion? Often, you know, we, we kind of know what we want, but we don't really have it spelled out. Nehemiah's vision is very clear. He's going to build a wall. And is it big enough that when it's accomplished, you only can give God the credit? Leaders are inspired by that big vision. And they can be inspiring. Some of you are leaders and you can inspire others. And we can join you in your task. Craig Rochelle says this, when the leader gets better, everyone gets better. When the leader gets better, everyone gets better. So if you have leadership, please use it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story today. We thank you, God, that you are a big God and you have lots of things you want to accomplish, that you're sovereign, you're Lord, and you want each of our lives to be significant. Father, I pray today for each of us that you make it very clear what you're calling us to do. Give us the ability to trust you and to learn to know what's there. Help us to become good leaders. And then, Father, we do pray that we will trust you and you will lead us and you'll direct us to the Place to Gather project. I pray that you would help Cabot in his leadership and others who are involved in significant roles. And I pray for us that we'll be good followers and we ask for your blessing. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.